0: of church do you want to go to? That was the question that got posed to me just right around six months ago by the search committee. Les, what kind of church do you want to go to? Um, you know, we're entering this period of great transition. We're going to use that word probably to you're your sick of it as we move on to the months ahead. I remember sort of uh, listening to that question and starting to realize that change is just hard on any organization, isn't it? My guess is that there's going to be plenty of, plenty of chances for us to cross each other's wills uh, in the months to come. But I also think it's important for us to remember what it is that keeps organizations together during times of transition. I think there's a lot of wise people that will tell you that you, can, you hold together as an organization when you know who you are. That is, when your core principles, the, the clarity, the understanding of your mission are together and explicit, and everyone is aligned around those principles, it helps you weather transition. The first illustration I thought of, forgive me, I was a campus minister for many, many years in a different life, Um, and it's always interesting to me to watch freshmen come on campus. You know, they'll be here in just six weeks, uh, short from where we are. And I think you can remember back, even probably when you went through your own freshman year, Uh, those friends that you had, maybe it was you, who were completely swamped by the sort of freshman party culture. And you look back and ask yourself, what what was it that happened? And there's a lot of people that will blame a lot of things. They'll say, you know, these colleges today, I don't know what's going on over there on that campus. I want to submit to you, though, that the people that had the hardest time kind of holding together when they came into a brand new set of surroundings were the people who did not have a solid sense of who they were. Wouldn't you say that about your own life? How many times did you get through things where you were so moldable by the things around you because you hadn't settled on who you were? Well, I just want to throw out there to you, I think that's the same for churches. Churches need to be clear about who we are. What is it that really makes this thing that we call Christ Presbyterian what it is? And how do we stay secure in that? Now, we're actually not going to tackle that today, (laughs) thankfully. But we're going to start working on it. And it's the path that we're going to go work through. And so I thought, rather than sort of launch into some of those conversations, that I would let you in on what has been an alignment for me. Like I said, in a former life, I worked for our denomination's campus ministry for about 24 years called Reformed University Fellowship, RUF for short. And I remember vividly in the summer of 1994, sitting in a classroom at Reformed Theological Seminary down in Jackson, Mississippi, and having, getting presented to me what RUF calls its principles. It was a series of sort of theological ideas around which we as campus ministers were supposed to align uh, in the process of our maturity as a campus minister. And so when the search committee asked me the question, Les, what kind of church do you want to go to? I said, well... Off the top of my head, I'd like to go to a church that was a place of the book. A church that was a place of grace. A church that was a place of change. And a church that was a place of celebration. And as it turns out, those are the title headings for the next six weeks of our series we're going to do before the students get here. I want you, in many ways, to sort of know what it is that when you, if you squeeze your pastor now, uh, this is what's going to come out of him. Questions of the book, questions of grace, questions of change, and questions of celebration. What are these things? So let's dive into the first one this morning, uh, being a place of the book. And I simply can say it like this, is that a church is only worth going to, to the degree that it has aligned everything that it does around the Bible. That's the simple statement. That's the message of the sermon. You can leave now if you want. You already got the message of the sermon. But I remember when I was growing up, most of the conversation that I picked up, now hear me, I'm choosing my words carefully. I'm not critical of what I grew up with religiously. But it was whatever going on in my own heart was, whenever I picked up someone who wanted to talk about the Bible, I, I tended to sort of hear them always saying how guilty I should feel that I don't read it. You ever felt that way? Someone's like, you know, we, we need to be reading our Bibles. and they're going, Ugh, I know I was supposed to do that, but I didn't. And what I realized, though, for me, one of the reasons, among probably a litany, of reasons why I'm not drawn to God's word in the way in which I think I should is because I really don't understand the claims that the Bible makes about itself, which are, to say the least, over the top. (laughs) And uh, Doug just read some of them for you. Look at verse uh, uh, 8 and 9 in Isaiah 55. God says, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts." neither are your ways my ways. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your hearts. What's God saying? God is saying, if you're going to understand what my word is about, you've got to see, first of all, that it's different from your words. Your speaking and my speaking are different. How are they different? Well, at least in two ways. I want to mention two ways in which our words are different from God's ways, and then I want to apply it in two ways. So don't get thrown off. There's four points this morning. The first way in which God's Word is different is that God's Word speaks to us uh, in a way that is certain. God's Word is certain. And what I'm trying to distinguish in this first point is the ways in which I think we often struggle with hearing God speak. Uh, That is, I think that people oftentimes feel, in certain senses, that God is speaking to them all the time. For some, they have dramatic life events that they look back on and they say, Man, the Lord just told me dot, dot, dot. Other people are very attuned to an inward sense of, um, of inward impressions that kind of rise up inside them. And, and if, if this is any sort of religious context like many of the others I've been to, I feel uh, sort of uh, clear that one of you sometime in the, few, in the years to come are going to come to me and say, Les, um, I just want you to know I really think that God is telling me to tell you this. And I'm going to respond to you the way to which I respond to everybody else. I'm going to say, look, if it's okay by you, I'm trying to master this book. And as soon as I've got all that down pat, I'll start to work on the things that God has told you to tell me through your impressions. (laughs) What am I trying to say? A little probably a sarcastic way of saying. When we hear God speaking, where do we hear him speaking? The Bible comes along and says that this is the sole place where you are to hear me speaking. So, throughout the Bible, you have people talking in such a way where certain people God would reveal his words to in a very unique way through these words and sentences that they wrote down. So that when you get to places like Acts chapter 1, verse 15, you have the Apostle Peter preaching his first uh, sermon. And in the middle of the sermon while he's talking about how Jesus sort of is where everything was headed to in the Scripture, he says this. He says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Listen to the way he talks. Which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Did you hear that? In other words, he said, Peter was saying, when I read the Psalms, I'm not reading David's words about God. I really believe that I'm reading God's Word through David. And therefore, what we can say is, is whatever we do with these impressions, and I'm not denying that God works in us and through us, through, these, um, through His illumination of His Word. But I'm saying that those particular experiences are open to interpretation. Sometimes they're wrong. They're subjective. So what is a Christian to do when he wants the certain Word of God? He goes to the Bible because that's the place where it's certain. And in that way, it's different from our words. But secondly, the second difference is, is that God's word doesn't come up empty. That's the way in which Isaiah put it. It's God's words, once they go out, they don't return to him uh, empty. Now, what in the world does that mean there in verse 11 when he says that? Well, uh, Isaiah is using an image uh, that comes from the language of agriculture. And he's talking about, what, uh, about a seed that produces a crop or a plant that goes into the ground. So what is Isaiah saying? He's saying God's words are of a kind that they actually produce something. Something substantive comes from it. His words have weight. There's something sort of tangible about them. And if that sounds strange to you, it kind of ought to. Because our words don't do that particular thing. Uh, There's an old Martin Luther quote that goes like this. Luther said, uh, the great reformer, Uh, We must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. Wow! (laughs) Where do you see the power of God? Luther says you see it in this book in sentences and phrases with periods at the end of them and commas. I want you to imagine for a moment that we were at last week's uh, party. We had a party after church last week. It was lovely. There was chicken there to die for. Thomas Pierce is a genius. Um, But let's imagine that while we all start to gather outside for our lunch, we look and we see a large dark storm cloud forming over our party, threatening to rain out of experience. So I and Kurt race to the edge of the sort of uh, uh, pavement, And we start shouting at the storm, Stop! Don't come! You might think we were crazy. You might not think we were crazy, which means you may be crazy. (laughs) Now, what would you think, though? The reason why you think I'd be crazy is because you're like, Well, less, less. you can't, it doesn't do anything. Your words are what? They're sophisticated sound vibrations that my ears are picking up. And that's really all your words are. But, Isaiah is saying, God's words are different from that. God's words are so real, they are so true, they are so inevitable, that once He speaks, it's the same thing as reality. Think about Genesis chapter 1. How does it start? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. It doesn't say, and then He went and made the light. What does it say? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Why? Because the sheer force of His word... God's words are the same as Actions. Listen to Psalm 33, uh, verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Look, this is the point. Christians believe. I want to recognize the fact, and I I hope to do this on a regular basis, that there are many inside a room like this who may see yourself standing on the outside of Christianity and evaluating it. And I want you to know, man, you've come to the right place. If you're going to reject Christianity, reject the genuine article and not a caricature that maybe a friend told you about. But Christianity is basically saying to you that we believe that God's Word has shaped for us the very pattern of reality. It's like a block of wood. I use this illustration all the time with students. If you go along the grain of the block of wood, you get to experience all the beauties of the wood. It's texture. It's contours. But turn that exact same block of wood around and go against the grain of reality, and what happens? You splinter up your life. God's word is saying, I, my word, is the grain of reality. Which is why he talks the way in which he does. In John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus is talking about his um, uh, his being the good shepherd and how he wants to be the good shepherd for his people. And he says at one point, "And and we know that the scriptures cannot be broken. What is he saying? He's saying every one of my words are going to last to the end because my words are not vague abstractions. They're the same as truth. They're the Word. The writer of Hebrews will say it this way, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So needless to say, God's words are different from our words because A, they're certain And B, they don't ever come up empty. Our words come up empty all the time. Okay, so what does that mean? Two quick points of application here before we finish. Uh, And I think I would say it in terms of being bad news and good news. I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. Let's finish with the good news and stay positive this morning, right? The bad news is very simply this. If what we're saying is true, it means that the word of God is going to break you. No matter what. In Jeremiah 23, the prophet says this. He said, through being the voice of God, is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. You know, that same block of wood that can delight you can also wound you deeply. So that when it comes down to it, and I heard Tim Keller say this years ago, and I, I can't stop thinking about it. When it really comes down to it, nobody can disobey God's word. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Les, clearly you're not paying attention. (laughs) People break God's word all the time. People break God's law all the time. But is that really what's happening? What is Jesus saying? Jesus says, look, in in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this sort of throwaway comment about, you know, uh, the law, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until everything is what? Fulfilled. Well, what does that mean? Those are not just predictions. What he's saying is, is if you decide to come to the word of God, and let's say for a moment, you decide to take it in. You say to yourself, I want to live by that. I want that to be my guiding light in life. That word is going to come inside you and it's going to humble you. You Want to know why? Because it's going to show you that you can't stand it. Let's give let's an example. Let's take the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness. You're not supposed to lie. You're supposed to have a tongue that is always and forever committed to the truth. So you decide one day, you know what, that's a good, that's a, that's a good idea. I'm going to be one of those people. You take that law in, and what does it show you? Once that law makes it down in your heart, you suddenly realize that you lie effortlessly. It's as easy as breathing for us to bend the truth, to shape the truth, to cast myself in the best light, to completely change stories. What does it show? Because here's the deal. If you take the word of God in, it's going to break you and it's going to humble you. And actually, that's what it's supposed to do. Because it's supposed to send us to the cross for a savior and not a little bit of help around the edges. So that's one option. Now, the other alternative, of course, is to attempt to ignore the command. In other words, there are some of those that want to take the law in. There's other people like, whatever. That's why I don't bother with laws. You people feel guilty all the time. I don't ever pay attention to them that ever thrown you off? You have know, people who look on the outside of Christianity being like, wow. I mean, you people should have a lot of time sort of freaking yourselves out about things. But is that really what's going on? Because what, what God is saying in this passage is, "No, no, 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 no. My law is so inevitable and so part of the pattern of reality that even when you try to ignore it, it's not that you're breaking it. It's that it's breaking you. Go ahead. Live your life as someone who cares nothing about the truth. Pay no attention to the need for integrity in what you say. And tell me what happens to your relationships. Tell me what happens to your business when it's built upon deception and you're suddenly found out and there's no trust between you and anyone around you. The point is this. They ain't but two options. You can either take the Word of God in and allow it to break you and humble you and send you to the cross. Or eventually that same law is going to break your life. And the tough thing is, is the Bible also says, that one day it will break our souls when we finally come inexorably up against God's absolute and utter truth. God's Word is either going to extract humility and praise from us, or it's going to destroy us. Hmm. At least that's the claim. All right, that's the bad news. Let's get away from that because I'm feeling convicted. What's the good news? The good news actually is found in places like 1 Peter 1.23. And I've got to know where I really love this verse. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, For you, talking about the believing people to whom he's writing, have been born again. There's this experience that you've been through of being born again where you have had a heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in. You've been born again, but not, Peter says, of a perishable seed, but of imperishable. And you're asking yourself, halfway through the verse, what might that be? What what is the imperishable seed that grew up inside me? Where did it come from? What is it? We'll finish the verse. Through the living and abiding, you guessed it, word of God. Man, this is great news. The imperishable nature of the Word means that when I begin to take it in and let the Bible and let those truths mash on me and begin to mold me and break me and then send me to the cross, it doesn't leave me there. Because it means that once I begin to pattern my life after the sort of way in which the Bible tells me the reality is, since it's an imperishable seed, I become an imperishable person. We become imperishable people. It means that not only will the things that God's word say never pass away, but it means the things that you do will never pass away. In other words, the things that you do will not return to you empty. Look back at Isaiah fifty-five. Isaiah's guarantee to us is that we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. What's he saying? He's saying that finally, at last, you can have certainty that anything that you do that is in alignment with the Word of God will never pass away. It'll never be done. It'll never be forgotten. It'll never be meaningless. It'll never be futile. I mean, it's fairly easy. You could take Jesus as an ultimate example. What did Jesus live by? <laughs> when he's tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, how did he respond to the devil each and every time? He quoted the Bible. In the time around his arrest, there's a lot of drama around Jesus' arrest. you got these soldiers that come up to him to arrest him, and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off some guy's ear. Seriously, that's in the story. Um, and Jesus is like, Peter, put your sword away. I ain't the way this is going to go down. I know that, do you not realize that your little sword is a pittance compared to what I could bring? I could call 10,000 angels to put an end to this situation right now. And of course, as a kid, when you're reading that, you're like, well, oh, I wish he'd have done it. that have been cool. But what does he say? He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? Jesus was using the Bible to get him to do what He was supposed to do in His mission. Healing on the Bible in that way. Finally then, the most dramatic in my opinion, is when He is on the cross, experiencing something that there is no mind in this room, could really wrap its mind around. Separation from His Father. And He screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? Well, do you know that's a quote from Psalm 22? (laughs) You get Jesus at the very end point, the, the, the crushing point of His own life, Now, what happens when you squeeze them? Scripture comes out. And for that reason, Jesus became an everlasting person. (laughs) Jesus is saying, look, when you take the Word of God into your life, heaven and earth may pass away, but you will never pass away. And as it turns out, that's kind of a big deal. It's a big deal for churches. (laughs) Look, we're we're talking about this sort of uh, uh, process of going out to build a new building so much here. And it's not because we need more convenience, which we do, or because we need more room, which we absolutely do. We're doing it, though, because born-again people understand an instinct for permanence. Is this going to last? Will I last? Will anything that I do meaning anything beyond my own short life? And the reason why we have instincts to build buildings, bear with me for a second, it's not because of vanity... Not because we just want to do something nicer. We do it because God's Word is permanent manifest. So by golly, if we can erect an edifice that will be here when every single person in this room is dead and gone, let's go do it. Let's do that. Why? Because we love the idea of something being lasting. Because we struggle. We want for something lasting. But every single day it feels like is warring against Our feeling like what we were going to do last. Has this crept up on you yet? I don't know whether this is an old... Maybe this is a 50-year-old thing, like where I am. But I remember reading it. I remember hearing a song back in the 90s that I actually really liked. By a guy named Joshua Cattison. He didn't really have a big hit. But he had a song called The Invisible Man. The lyrics went like this. He said, I woke up this morning with a funny feeling and I wasn't really sure what it was all about. But I felt like I was Disappearing. And so I ran to the mirror to check it out. And I said, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. But why do I feel like the invisible man? I stumbled back in the bedroom and I stared out at a rising sun. And then I heard myself shout out a window, not really talking to anyone. And I yelled, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. But why do I feel like the invisible man? The lights went on. People started yelling, Will a crazy man go back to bed? And there I was, laughing outside my window, feeling much better now that someone heard what I said. He says, well, it's no big thing, no revelation, no answer to these lives we lead. But I think we, I do know one thing. Sometimes I think we all need to say, Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. When life makes us feel like the invisible man. Hey, think about the description that we just gave of the Word. We talked about the fact that it's it's solid. We talked about the fact that it's permanent. We talked about the fact that it breaks us. And we we said also, but it also establishes us. Hey, what does that sound like to you? That sounds to me like a person. And as it turns out, the Bible has got tons of examples where it's really hard to tell whether the Bible's talking about itself or whether it's talking about God speaking something. I want to suggest to you that there is one place where we see the Bible meeting in all of its glory, and all of its beauty, and being manifest most vividly, and it's in the person of Jesus. In other words, that's who we have to get to know. That's where the Word is leading us. Let me say it this way. You're only going to build an everlasting life. You're only going to work against the tendency to feel like the invisible man. This church will only last as long as it is in touch with Jesus, the ultimate everlasting person. On the cross, Jesus became what? Temporary. On the cross, Jesus became fleeting so that in His resurrection, He could make you everlasting. The more you're connected to the Word, the more you've found something solid, something true. And that's the reason why Moses finishes his last sermon in Deuteronomy this way. Where he says, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children and that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is is no empty word for you, but it's your very life. What kind of church do you want to go to? I want to go to one that's a place of the book. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would You make us so. Father, we believe that our sin is, in, is of such a nature that it is encrusted around us. And because it is, we have trouble breaking through to see what is real. And so we pray that You would break into us. For some of us, Lord, we've been, we've been slamming ourselves up against the brick wall of Your Word and didn't even realize it. And our lives are all splintered up because we thought the disobedience to Your Word was where life was. And as it turns out, there's only life in You. And Lord Jesus, there's only life in You. You have freed us up by Your work on the cross. You took on impermanence to give us permanence. You took on a temporary life to give us eternal life. And for that reason, Father, we will sit and drink this word week in and week out we pray that we would and in so doing become imperishable like You are. For we ask it in Jesus' name.